turn to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Sorry, I'm trying to figure this out. Find verse 33. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. And the soldiers who mocked him, uh, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Verse 39, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not fear, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Um, what we know from the backlog uh, of this story is that two of these guys were about to die due to established laws, right? Capital punishment. Um, they were both guilty of capital crimes that they committed. They were criminals. They were thieves. Uh, the accounts in Matthew and Mark refer to them as robbers. So they probably were busy taking things that weren't theirs. And then, and then we have this third person who's sentenced due basically to popular demand. Okay. Uh, he did not commit a capital crime, anything worthy of capital punishment. He's there due to popular demand. Okay. Um, actually, he's there because of offense. Uh, he offended people. Um, this might sound familiar to some of us today. Uh, it, it seems like for, for a long time in this country, we were able to just say things right, wrong, or indifferent, and, um, and still have a, a common love and, and common understanding for each other. Now, um, we want to hurt people. We want to inflict harm if they offend us. Um, this was going on back then, too. Jesus is there because he offended people. He offended people by what he said. He offended people by what he did. And Jesus, after he was arrested, there was a conversation that went down between him and Pilate, which was the Roman authority having legal jurisdiction at that time, um, and, and Jesus. They had a conversation, and basically Pilate's trying to attempt to understand why Jesus found himself in the predicament that he was in. Pilate doesn't get it. He doesn't get the Jewish politics completely, you know? And Jesus really didn't say much to defend himself other than this. For this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. 
There were, of course, other reasons behind why he was actually um, set up um, and convicted. Uh, blasphemy, um, but, you know, that's, that's a pretty good reason to kill somebody. Uh, if they're claiming to be God or claiming to be equal with God uh, and you're a Jew, that just it doesn't fly. You've got to take care of things like that, you know. Um, but also just political stabilization. I mean, this guy, this guy had a lot of people that were listening to him. They had a lot of, he had a lot of people that were following him. There was a lot of stir going on around Jesus, which created a threat to the political stabilization in Jerusalem. But ultimately, this is the reason why Jesus earned his death that day on that cross. The death sentence was because he was a truth teller. Men did not like it when Jesus did truth and he told truth. This was his crime. Um, it is true that the current judicial system sentenced him to death, but the truth is that it was Jesus ultimately who sentenced himself to death. He, he, he came into this world ultimately to die. Yeah. This was the plan all along. This is why he was born. And so the stage is set. We have two thieves hanging for their crimes, and then we have Jesus, an innocent disruptor of the religious and political establishment for speaking words and performing acts that offended people. Now, these three men are put onto crosses that day for one purpose, to die, right? That's why the cross was invented, and that's why the cross was perfected. The Roman thought is, how can we kill somebody in the slowest possible way, the most miserable way, the most humiliating way, publicly, and crucifixion was born? And so, like, I don't want to get crazy with the gory details on it, but just so you know, because I remember as a kid for years, I didn't understand what was so bad about the cross. It just looked like um, there was someone that was just hanging vertically on a post for everyone to see. And it's like, well, why is that such a, like, what's wrong with that? Like, maybe, like, the nails or uh, the devices that were used to secure the person to the cross, I, I think I thought, were maybe the horror of it as a kid. But it's not. Because what, what crucifixion is, is it's death through asphyxiation, which means suffocation, right? Thus, you have someone pinned vertically. Because as they would get weak, gravity would take them where? Down. And as they went down, they were unable to take in breaths. And so they would have to use those devices and every bit of energy that they have to push themselves back up just so that they can take in one more breath and go back down. And this would take days sometimes. Days of people urinating and defecating on themselves. There's even been archeological finds of crucifixes where they found little platforms that are put just in the right spot to keep them alive even longer so that as they're going down, they can't ultimately let themselves go all the way, but that platform then kind of stops them. It doesn't relieve them. I mean, it's just, it was just ridiculous. And this was the purpose of crucifixion. How do we kill someone in the longest, most painful, most humiliating way possible? 
So these guys, right now, in this narrative, are about to endure a shared experience that is the most excruciating death possible. In fact, did you know that's where that word comes from? Sometimes we throw it out there. If I get a really bad migraine or something, I'm like, the pain's excruciating. The word excruciating was invented at the cross. It literally means from the cross. As we read through this account, it doesn't take us long, though, to realize that something bigger is going on than just a shared crucifixion. There's a deeper, more profound element and purpose to these men sharing a physical, public crucifixion. And so now we enter thief number one. For the sake of just reference this morning, we'll call this dude the thief to the left. Verse 39 says, there was also, uh, sorry, one of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, meaning railed at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This guy's not holding up too well. Like, do you get that impression? He's holding up about as well as you would expect a hardened criminal to handle getting caught and punished. There's anger there, there's fear there, there's desperation, there's blame. Self-concern. He does not rage at the onlookers or the soldiers, or the authorities who put them, him there, he rages at Jesus, the one hanging next to him. He directs everything that's built up inside of him at Jesus. Verse 39 says he railed at Jesus, which means to utter abuse. That means the dude's probably cussing. He's calling Jesus names. He's antagonizing him. He's mocking him. He is fully against Jesus right now. He's mad at Jesus for what's happened to him. There's no sorrow, there's no brokenness, there's no contrition, there's no shame, there's no admittance, there's no humility, just anger and blame. That's someone who had nothing to do with why he's there. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Like, this is one part sarcasm, right? And one part blame. And what is he wanting from Jesus? He's wanting his current situation fixed, not his heart. He's wanting a way out of the predicament, not a way into true forgiveness. He wants his life fixed, not his soul. And this is common. You and I live in this same world and same climate in the church today. It's, it's, it's when backs are against the wall that we cry out. And I do the same thing. You know. But to a lot of people, that is what Christianity's become. It's a it's a get out of jail free card, you know. And Jesus is just the the genie in the lamp that we rub to make one of our wishes come true. This guy wants one right now. He wants to use one up right now. It'd be a good one to use up. Like, he doesn't have anywhere to go. This dude doesn't want his sins forgiven. He wants his life fixed. And as a result, his response to Jesus is ultimately rejection. This is a the true revelation of this guy's heart right here. 
And this is the internal state of the thief on the left. Enter thief number two, the thief to Jesus' right. Verses 40, 41, but the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, uh, we indeed justly, for we're receiving the, due of our, the reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This guy's going, hey man, the one you're ripping on is in the same predicament right now we are, if you haven't noticed. Right? Except we actually deserve to be here. He doesn't. First thing we see from thief number two is that he believes that Jesus is innocent by that statement. Guess that? But what makes it even more curious than that is the bombshell of a statement that he makes in 42, where he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal seems to have a completely different view of who this Jesus was that's hanging next to him, a completely different interpretation of the one hanging in the middle. And what this is, is a short, simple statement, eight words, that is packed full of eternal meaning. Because what he is saying is, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you have power over this life, and I believe you have power and authority over the next. Do you see that in that statement? It's all there. It's quite a confession that he's making. In other words, this man has faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, and it nets him the most amazing response from the Savior in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This thief received Jesus by faith, and Jesus received him back. At the 11th hour, and the 59th minute of this dude's life, he sees and he believes and he is received. These two thieves couldn't be any different. One had no idea of the true identity of the man hanging next to him or the true reality of his own condition, while the other was completely awake to the true identity of the one hanging next to him as well as to his own sinful condition and his guilt. And it is at this point that you and I can take a step back and see what is really happening here. What we have here is three crosses and three deaths. Three different crosses, three different deaths going on. We have one man that is dying in his sin, we have one man who is dying to his sin, and we have one man who is dying for sin. Three crosses, three deaths taking place. And what's the difference between the thief on the left and the thief on the right? Was he smarter? The guy on the right, was he more logical, more intellectual, right? Faith is, is the difference. Faith is what separated the two thieves. The thief on the right is justified and received by Jesus by faith. And what is faith? The dictionary says, belief without proof. I actually like that. That's just pretty like, there it is. Belief without proof or trust. The Bible answers it this way. This is the biblical definition given by the writer of the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen, which is belief without proof, trust, right? In other words, it's when you positively know that you know that you know that you fully believe something to be real and true, though you have not or cannot see it. And this is where the skeptics want off the bus regarding God and the existence of God, because it ultimately requires faith in something that we have not yet seen. And yet we have to have that, to know God and to be known by God, because it is impossible to please God apart from faith. What's often overlooked by these very same skeptics is that they often hold to a worldview based on things like science alone or naturalistic reasoning, which requires in the end the exact same kind of faith. You know why? Because none of them were there, and they don't know anyone who was. They're in the same predicament that we are. Uh, this, is where I, this is the point of the conversation when I like, have conversations with atheists and non-believers, and we get into it. This is the, I love this point when you can stand back and lovingly say, so we're bo- just two men of faith. My faith says this happened, your faith says that, but at the end of the day, you and I are both depending on trusting something we or nobody else around us has seen. They rely on faith. Um, Not only that, we actually, just every human being that exists relies in ways practically on faith every single day. Um, How many of you on your way down here this morning, it was pretty foggy, it was Tammy Smith actually sent a text, like be careful, like once you get to state rec, it gets bad. Like you couldn't hardly see, but how many of you when you saw a car coming the other way, pulled off to the side of the road and just waited for that car to go by and then got back on. Anybody? You know why? Because you had faith that whoever was in that car coming the other way was gonna stay in their lane, right? You had faith that they weren't gonna like have a heart attack all of a sudden while they're driving down. You just, you trusted that they're gonna stay in their lane. We practice it all the time. If we didn't, we'd be like, what about Bob? Anyone seen that? Right, Bill Murray. Like, we'd be baby-stepping to the couch and to the bathroom and to the refrigerator. Maybe, maybe. That's what kept that dude paralyzed from living and from leaving his apartment, is he could not rely at all on just practical face that we all have to to get through life. Restaurants are the weirdest one. Think about this. I don't want to freak you out. Seriously, though. Like, there's some restaurants you should not eat at around here, probably. But we all have our favorite place to go, right? And, and I'll bet that none of you, when you go into that restaurant, walks back into the kitchen and says, I'm just going to observe everything to make sure that you're storing everything right, you're preparing everything right, you're handling everything right, and that you're cooking everything right before it gets to my table. How many of you have ever done that? No, you sit down at your table, you order your favorite dish, and then you have faith that they're going to handle your food right that they stored your food right, that they prepared your food right, and that they didn't do anything stupid with your food, and that that food's coming to you clean and ready to go. You have faith. We all walk in this on so many levels all the time. We just don't think about it, right? 
Faith is a common function of every human being. But it is what we put our faith in that sets us all apart. It's what set the thief on the right apart from the thief on the left. Faith is the difference between these two guys, the difference between life and death eternally. Faith in who Jesus said he was. One of the things I love about the narrative of the thief on the cross is that it's one of the greatest living pictures of free grace and free forgiveness and the free love of God through the gospel of God apart from anything that you and I can add or earn. Do you see that here? It's the perfect example, the prime example. Think about this. This guy has absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. He can't even reach into one of his pockets and fish for something. He has no time to clean himself up before he meets the Savior of the universe. He has no time to start being a good person. He has no time to read his Bible. He has no time to serve in ministry. He has no time to go out and love others. He has no time to to go back to all those people that he wronged and stole from and make amends. No time. He has no time to walk into a church service like this. No time to participate in a worship service or drop a dollar in the box for God. No time to even get to a pool of water to be baptized. There is no moral resume that this man can ever put together or build to offer to God. This guy has no time to do anything but hang there and die. This dude is just a sinner in front of everybody. Case closed, end of story. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, you're coming with me. Today, you're coming with me. Everything that was ever wrong inside of this man is going to be made right that very day by the living God of the universe, free of charge, at Christ's expense. There are all kinds of people in this world. I know you guys have met some characters. Just go to Portland. Portland's got some, maybe not now, but wait till if things go back. Go, like it's, it's like going to the circus, right? You go over, you people watch, you, you just see some colorful, you see some colorful people, you know? But at the end of the day, guys, there are two kinds of people. Those who hang to the left of Jesus and those who hang to the right. The question is, which thief are you? The one who dies once or the one who dies twice? Baptism does speak of this, and and I know it's funny because this is like the quintessential narrative that we use in the Bible that we go to 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 prove that you don't have to be water, water baptized. You know, what about the thief on the cross, you know? We always go to this guy, right? But actually, This is exactly what baptism speaks of, right? Death to self, being made alive in Christ. It's exactly what baptism speaks of. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it represents. 
Just because the thief was unable to get dunked in water before he died doesn't mean that he wasn't baptized that day. This is really the meeting of baptism for those of us who go on living after our come to Jesus moment, you know. It's, it's really, baptism is really a proclamation of Galatians chapter two, verse 20. You guys all know this, right? For I have been crucified in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's exactly what we get to witness right now. We have a few people that are, that are going to get baptized. And um, to me, th- this is one of those things that never gets old. It never gets old. And the reason that it never gets old is because this right here, that we all just felt and heard and experienced, is what's going on. That's the reality of what's being done when you see somebody go in and come out. You're seeing them die to their sins and being made alive in Christ. 